Welcome to another episode of On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. You probably already know that On Becoming has a presence on Twitter at On Becoming Pod and Instagram at On Becoming Podcast. But I'm mentioning that because there may be some new listeners that don't know that. Your questions, your comments, your suggestions for the podcast, they're welcome. You can send them to onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Let me also invite you to support the podcast on Patreon. The web address is patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. But you can also access it through Twitter, again, at onbecomingpod. It's the pinned tweet just past the link. You'll see that there are various levels of support possible. Friend of the pod, student of the academy, philosopher in training, disillusioned scholar, and overachiever. You can find all of those on Patreon. Before we get going on this week's episode, I want to mention a couple of items that relate to this series, examining evangelicalism from the perspective of a cult. One is that Jinger Duggar Vuolo has just published a book titled Becoming Free Indeed. It's subtitled My Story of Disentangling Faith from Fear. Depending on where you live and, for that matter, what kind of television you watch, you may know that the Duggar family uh, was on a documentary titled 14 Children and Pregnant Again, and then later was on a show called 17 Kids and Counting, which became 18 Kids and then 19 Kids. You, you get the picture. What struck me was the dichotomy she attempts to establish early on in her narrative. I want to put that dichotomy in her own words, uh, though, alas, perhaps the words of a ghostwriter. It's one of those books that lists the author and then adds with so-and-so. She says, but first, I need to make something clear. I am not deconstructing my faith. Deconstruction is a popular word in Christian circles today. It represents a movement of young people who grew up in a Christian home, but in adulthood have decided that much, if not all, of what they were taught as children is not for them. They've abandoned their religious beliefs. They tore them down and never rebuilt any kind of faith. I hope that most of you listening know immediately that this is not what deconstruction is. It was Derrida who popularized what until then had been a relatively neglected French term. But it's important to realize that Derrida's idea of deconstruction drew on the phenomenological notion of unbuilding, which could easily be described as analysis. In the episode, Jesus the Deconstructor, I pointed out that Jesus was a master of deconstruction regarding many of the religious assumptions of his day. When we take things apart, yes, it can be destructive. When Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day, he's clearly diminishing their authority. But his point, of course, is that they have misused that authority for their own gain. So exposing that is part of Jesus' deconstruction. But of course, there are many ways of taking things apart that are not destructive. I pointed out that Bible commentaries are excellent examples of deconstruction. The goal in a commentary is to illuminate what the author is saying. In this case, deconstruction takes the form of, this is what Luke is trying to tell us. To use a different example, if someone missed what the professor says in class and then asks, what did he say? To the extent that what has just been said is put in other words, to that extent it counts as deconstruction. Or there's a kind of taking apart that I relished as a kid, wanting to see how everything worked and then putting it all back together. 
that mostly worked. Next week, I'm giving a talk in Austria at a conference with the title Deconstructing Idolatry. You might think, well, why do idols need to be deconstructed since they're bad by definition? But of course, the problem is that idols are successful in getting your attention because, well, they seem like the real thing. That's why they're a problem. So the challenge is carefully parsing out the difference between an idol and the real thing. And that's not easy. To put it another way, we are very comfortable with our idols because we're the ones who've made them and we've made them in our own image. That means, of course, that when our idols get disrupted, we get upset. To be sure people can read into a text, by the way, that's called eisegesis, as readily as they can take ideas from a text, that's called exegesis. Derrida also made the point that once you've put something in writing and then published it, you can't really control it anymore. When Derrida first made that point in writing, there was an uproar in the academic community. Really? I can't control my words? Various academics questioned Derrida to the effect, why write anything at all if people can misunderstand you? But of course, Plato had said more or less the same thing. And Derrida is drawing on Plato. And if you have ever posted anything online, then you have probably experienced exactly what Derrida is talking about. You meant X, but some people who read your text take you to be saying something different, perhaps even not X. In other words, when someone wants to use the word deconstruction to mean something like brutal demolition, there isn't much one can do about it except to point out that this is a very different meaning. But readers may not care about such precision. I wrote a review of John D. Caputo's book, What Would Jesus Deconstruct for Christianity Today? And the comments were so vertuperative that I asked someone who was neither a philosopher nor a theologian to read the review and then read the comments. My only question was this. Do these comments reflect at all what I've said? The person I asked was quite clear that there was a huge disconnect between what I had said and what people had heard. So you might be asking, so who are the people Mrs. Buolo is talking about? She specifically mentions Josh Harris, who became known in evangelical circles for his book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, a book I confess I've never read. But more recently, Harris offered an online course that included a deconstruction starter pack for only $275. It turns out Harris got so much negative feedback that he stopped offering the course. Still, I'm absolutely intrigued by the idea of a starter pack for deconstruction. Derrida insists that deconstruction is something that happens. It doesn't require anyone wanting to deconstruct anything. It happens anytime you read something and ask questions about it. You could deconstruct an invitation to a party that states black tie preferred. What does preferred mean here? Does it mean we we won't like you as much if you come less formally? Just those three words could result in an extended conversation about what to wear. Anyway, given the completely ordinary and everyday definition of deconstruction, what could a starter pack possibly mean? You've been deconstructing things as long as you've been alive. It's something that human beings just do. We ask questions, we wonder, we try to understand. Now you have a word for all of that. In any case, the starter pack sounds like a ripoff. The topic for this week is what 
Lifton calls mystical manipulation. He also, though, speaks of extensive personal manipulation, so he uses both of these, term these terms. Last week, we looked at some of the daily or life practices found in the evangelical world. This week focuses more on spiritual practices. I haven't quoted Lifton much thus far, but something he says really caught my eye. He writes this. This manipulation assumes a no-holds-barred character and uses every possible device at the milieu's command, no matter how bizarre and painful. Initiated from above, it seeks to provoke specific patterns of behavior and emotion in such a way that these appear to have arisen spontaneously from within the environment. This element of planned spontaneity, directed as it is by an ostensibly omniscient group, must assume for the manipulated a near mystical quality. Each of these sentences requires exegesis, though we'll have to work our way through them. I've mentioned before that Lifton originally wrote this piece titled Ideological Totalism, The Eight Deadly Sins, in response to Chinese communist thought reform. At the time, and probably still today, people have referred to this as brainwashing. This is not exactly a precise term, though it may not be any more imprecise than the imprecise thing it's attempting to describe. For such an idea to have any kind of purchase on reality, one must believe that there are things in people's brains or minds that need to be, as well as could be, washed away, metaphorically, of course. While I don't want to suggest that the communist authorities in China were thinking of the Christian idea of washing sins away, the similarity here is certainly interesting. In both cases, there is this idea of being unclean, and the treatment is cleansing. By the way, we'll be looking at the ideal of purity next week. At this point, I should add that Lifton's essay has been recently published in Losing Reality, which is subtitled on cults, cultism, and the mindset of political and religious zealotry. In this new edition, he adds the following to the chapter on the eight deadly sins. It is one thing to make such theoretical generalizations, and quite another to have them viscerally confirmed by people who had experienced them in the very different setting of American cults. Now, the point he's making here is this. Those who have been involved in American cults find that his description of something ostensibly very different, Chinese communist thought reform, turns out to mirror their own experience in significant ways. My goal in this series is to explicate why I think this way of thinking about evangelicalism in terms of cults is helpful. Whether you find it be helpful, of course, is for you to decide. Let's go back to this statement. Initiated from above, it seeks to provoke specific patterns of behavior and emotion in such a way that these appear to have arisen spontaneously from within the environment. I think the first complication here is going to be the following. If such mystical manipulation is going on, does that mean that the authorities know that this is what they're doing, and thus they are doing so intentionally? This is, I think, a key question, and it gets to the heart of the issue. To be honest, I find it very hard to believe that, for instance, Joel Osteen isn't aware that he's manipulating people. Indeed, if he's not aware of that, then he has remarkably bad self-awareness. 
You probably realize that many people have gone bankrupt because of manipulators like Austin. When evangelists say, give until it hurts, that's exactly what some people have done. The televangelist James Payne tells his audience that giving his ministry $1,000 would make a huge difference in their lives. He says, something that doesn't happen at the other levels. Another televangelist named Mike Murdoch asked his audience to sow their seed gift of $1,000 and then says that if you send in that money, and now I'm quoting him, God is going to wipe out your credit card debt. If you want a different example, Creflo Dollar asks his listeners to send in enough money so that he could buy his own personal jet. The cost was a mere $65 million. But you know how it is with these evangelists. They just got to travel. Turns out, though, the traveling is 100% on someone else's dime. If you need an example of what I'm talking about, someone named Bonnie Parker decided it was better to give thousands of dollars to Kenneth Copeland instead of getting cancer treatment. By the way, Kenneth Copeland's personal net worth is estimated at about $760 million. His wife, Gloria Copeland, actually says that if you have cancer, you can get chemo and be miserable, or, to quote her, you can sit here and listen to the word of God. Does Gloria Copeland really believe that listening to her preach will cure cancer? You can see that there's unfortunately no good answer to that question. If she does think that, then she needs a little guidance so that she can see that while talk therapy is often helpful for people with depression, it's not so effective for people with cancer. Chemotherapy turns out to be a lot better. On the other hand, if she doesn't think that listening to her preach will cure cancer, then she is 100% manipulating people. As I said earlier, neither of these possibilities seems very good. Let's go back to Austin. Someone like him is relatively easy to deconstruct. You just need a few facts. If you look online, you can see various pictures of his house or mansion. Uh, I'm not sure either of those words are uh, appropriate, maybe compound or headquarters. According to different sources, his house either has 17,000 square feet or 70,000 square feet. I've never worked in real estate, but the pictures look a lot more like 70,000 than 17,000. To put both of those numbers in context, I have what is considered a larger flat or apartment in Edinburgh. It's a little over 1,000 square feet. So Austin's house is either 17 times larger than mine or 70 times larger. I'm actually baffled that anyone could need, in any n normal sense of the word, need so much space. I've lived in a bigger place than the one I have now, but I often used to think that was more than enough. Between his book sales and speaking engagements, it is estimated that Austin makes about $55 million per year. He owns a custom-built garage that has 20 parking places for his collection of vehicles among them, is his personal favorite, a Ferrari 458 Italia uh, that costs $270,000. So is Austin in it for the money or not? My advice, follow the money. Now, if you want a different kind of contrast, you might want to think of the first evangelical president, Jimmy Carter, who spent all of his life after he was the president of the United States working with Habitat for Humanity. 
He could have spent much of that time giving talks, talks that usually pay extremely well, especially if you're a former president. When I say he was involved in Habitat for Humanity, I don't mean that he was on some kind of committee. I mean he was actually physically building houses with a hammer. That is such a contrast in comparison to Joel Osteen. As I say, I would find it very hard to believe that Osteen isn't aware that he's engaged in manipulation. But of course, manipulation isn't necessarily something that one aims to accomplish. Manipulation can take place even if neither the manipulator or the manipulatee are aware of it. If you've ever spent much time with a narcissist, you realize that they're very cleverly manipulative. Looking at various studies on narcissists, particularly regarding the question of whether they are aware that they are narcissists, the results seem mixed. Some narcissists apparently are well aware of who they are and how they operate. And in fact, when asked, would they like to ch change? Reply, no, they're quite happy being who they are. But I doubt that's the case with all people who are manipulative in nature. Now, I've provided a number of examples of people who seem to be very purposely manipulative of people, particularly, of course, to manipulate people to give money to their ministry. Yet the difficulty here is this. Evangelicals like to think that people like the Copelands, Creflo Dollar, Joel Osteen, Jim Baker, and a host of other people are completely different from normal evangelicals. The question, of course, is, what is that difference? Is it that normal evangelicals don't make crazy claims like giving money to this ministry will cure you from cancer? I hope so. Is it that most evangelical pastors are asking for a lot less? In other words, is the difference purely qualitative rather than quantitative? It's clear these folks I've mentioned are experts in parting people from their money. The question is whether the motives at work in normal evangelical churches are substantially different. But that's a question that I will not be able to answer. You'll have to answer that for yourself. The best I can do is provide some details. Let's turn for a moment to evangelical worship. Evangelical services at this point tend to be slick and well-produced. Uh, particularly the ones at the megachurches, which often use professional musicians and actors. The kinds of songs sung set the tone for the meeting and made the audience receptive to the message. In some cases, the manipulation seems almost a bit too obvious. Nietzsche makes the point that words speak to our little reason, while music speaks to our great reason. The little reason, of course, is what we normally call reason. Our great reason is what we normally call intuition. Nietzsche believes that music has a swaying power over us. It speaks to us both emotionally and intellectually. Nietzsche writes, with tones, one can seduce people into every error and every truth. That's a remarkable statement. If you think about it, singing hymns is a far deeper kind of theological conditioning than preaching. We generally forget sermons. But the songs we learn in Sunday school tend to follow us all through our lives. Or maybe it's just me. I personally can sing dozens of the children's songs I learned at church. 
Indeed, sometimes I come into my head and two days later they are still hanging around. Nietzsche notes that we are particularly influenced by the kinds of songs and rhymes we learn as children back when we are incapable of being critical of what we are being taught. I'm quite convinced that he's right. Though let me add something I mentioned in the previous episode. Nietzsche isn't saying that things taught to children are necessarily bad, nor is he suggesting that children learning things from their parents and teachers is bad. The point here is simply this. The kinds of things we learn in childhood usually become so much part of our mental furniture that it becomes difficult to see them as that, as stuff that we've been taught along the way, stuff that we've internalized so deeply that it's hard even to see that you could think differently. My talk for next week is sounding out idols, which some of you can probably guess is inspired by Nietzsche. In his book, Twilight of the Idols, Nietzsche writes, another way to recover, which under circumstances I like even better, is sounding out idols. There are more idols than realities in the world. To pose questions here with a hammer for once, and maybe to hear and reply that well-known hollow tone which tells of bloated innards. How delightful for one who has ears even behind his ears. The reference, of course, to having ears is a reference to something Jesus says, let anyone with ears hear. Just to be clear, Nietzsche is referencing the kind of hammer used by piano tuners. His point is that idols are hollow, and if we take the time to examine our idols, we may be able to hear that they are merely idols, that they're hollow and empty. I've used the, wor the verb may here because idol detection is really difficult. If you could constructed an idol, which frankly could be just about anything, it's going to be hard to see it as an idol. There's a book titled Battle for the Mind, subtitled The Mechanics of Indoctrination, Brainwashing, and Thought Control. It's a fascinating study of how people are influenced. The author, William Sargent, considers such questions as how animals are controlled, how drugs are used in psychotherapy, why prisoners confess to crimes that they never committed, and the ways in which people are persuaded to believe various things connected to both religion and politics. Turns out that Sargent grew up Methodist, and so he ended up studying the preaching of John Wesley. He writes, I became convinced of the tremendous power latent in his methods, though these have been now abandoned by the church which he built and strengthened by their use. What Sargent means by this is that at least in Methodist churches today, the hellfire doctrine has been largely marginalized. Of course, if you look back in the history of Christianity, you'll see that this doctrine has been probably the single most influential reason for people converting to Christianity. When you give people a choice between heaven and hell, it's, well, a hell of a choice. Does anyone really want to end up in hell? By the way, I don't actually think that Jesus talked the, do the doctrine of hell, but that's going to be a subject for a different podcast. Probably the most famous hellfire sermon is that of Jonathan Edwards, titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you've ever read that, it probably scared the living daylights out of you. Evangelicals are very much into hell, but they tend to downplay that. 
Notice that the kind of appeal used by the televangelists, at least the ones I've mentioned, is more of a carrot than a stick. They ask for a donation with the promise of getting something in return. Officially, this is called the prosperity gospel, the idea that giving to God will allow one to reap great rewards. Many evangelical pastors denounce such a belief, that God will reward you to the extent that you give to God, or rather, someone who fills in for God. To that extent, basically, you would be rewarded. So most evangelical pastors denounce that. But note that they do not generally denounce the the idea that God will reward people in heaven. That's firmly part of evangelical doctrine. But there's something else here worth mentioning. Even though the prosperity gospel is not explicitly endorsed, there's a very strong thread of thinking that assumes that people who aren't doing well financially or in other ways probably aren't following God's will. Or viewed from the other side, the prosperous are prosperous precisely because they've been blessed by God, and that blessing is deserved. Protestants tend to downplay anything that sounds like salvation through works. But there is still a strong connection between being good and getting blessed in the evangelical world. Evangelicals think of sin as a personal phenomenon. Things didn't go right for you because you didn't do what you're supposed to do. But if you follow God's plan, then you will be blessed. Here it's probably helpful to mention, to remember that Lifton speaks of mystical manipulation. In other words, there may not be an explicit teaching that God will reward you if you give to God, but I think such a belief is still highly implicit in evangelicalism. Further, because evangelicals see responsibility as a very personal thing, one is only responsible for one's own actions. Evangelicals normally do not consider themselves in any way responsible for the ills of society. In fact, given this personal responsibility lens, most evangelicals will look at you funny if you start speaking about systems or systematic phenomena like misogyny, racism, etc. Those are simply not categories in which most evangelicals think. Sorry, I should correct what I've just said. More accurately, it is that evangelicals reject the idea that they might be complicit in any way in the systems which I've mentioned that are abusive. So here's where we are at the moment. I pointed out that people can be manipulated in many ways. I've also pointed out that the term manipulation is problematic. The most basic definition of manipulation is operating with the hand skillfully. It's only the second definition that gets at what we're talking about, which is to control or play upon by artful, unfair, or insidious means, especially to one's own advantage. What's problematic about this definition is that it implies that people knowingly manipulate other people. But I think this idea may ascribe too much agency to people. A synonym for manipulate, of course, is the word influence. We've all heard of influencers on social media. Do they manipulate people? You can probably see that this is a difficult question to answer. I suspect most of us can imagine people deciding to become influencers because of the desire for control, though I suspect that other factors are much more likely, like fame and money. But it would be a stretch to say that all influencers are trying to manipulate you. 
My guess is that in the continuum with total manipulation on the one side and complete innocence on the other, people could end up in many different spots on that continuum. Now let's go back to John Wesley. Sargent says the following about Wesley. Wesley changed the religious and social life of England for the better with the help of such methods in a modified and socially accepted form. In other hands, in other countries, they've been used for sinister purposes. So a sergeant is not accusing Wesley of doing something wrong. In fact, he was instead trying to understand why Wesley's sermons were so effective. Wesley wrote detailed accounts of his preaching and its effect. Here's one of those accounts. We understand that many who were offended at the cries of those on whom the power of God came, among whom was a physician who was much afraid there might be fraud or imposture in the case. Today, one whom he had known many years was the first who broke out into strong cries and tears. He could hardly believe with his own eyes and ears. He went and stood close to her and observed every symptom, till great drops of sweat reddened on her face and all her bones shook. He then knew not to think, being clearly convinced that it was not a fraud, nor yet any natural disorder. When both her soul and body were healed in a moment, he acknowledged the finger of God. That is quite a story. As you can tell, Wesley's preaching was designed to appeal to what Nietzsche calls our greater reason, Basically, the right hemisphere where our emotions lie. Put another way, these conversion stories are not left-brain ones. The conversion doesn't take place because someone gave you a great syllogism or a lovely piece of dialectical logic or even the ontological argument. Instead, the appeal is much more to one's emotions. Please do not hear what I am not saying. I have no brief against the emotions. I think the emotions are probably the most basic part of what it is to be human. And from what I can tell, they motivate us much more than does complex reasoning. As you think about that statement, keep in mind the fact that I've spent my career working in complex reasoning. But I still think that we think by way of both what we call our reason and by our emotions. We think by way of our emotions, all right? That is not the consensus among philosophers, but I think that's actually the case. Now, there's definitely the emotional aspect of the prospect of hell, but it's much more than that. I think what Wesley was offering was a different way of being. And of course, this was something that could be only really understood on a kind of emotional or this is your life kind of basis. But now I hope you can see that the distinction between outright manipulation and forceful rhetoric isn't all that easy to draw. Sargent is actually thankful that Wesley used his techniques for good, but likewise points out that they could be equally used for ill. And that's, I think, where things stand. Such techniques... Some would call them emotional manipulation. Others would see them as helpful aids are a part of evangelicalism. I have no doubt that some evangelical leaders are guilty of manipulation in the bad sense. Yet evangelical leaders still realize that followers need to be coaxed in the right direction. That's where the rhetoric comes in. 
How exactly they choose to do that says something about their own views regarding God and how God works in the world. Still, the reality is that evangelical services definitely do intend to put the listener into a state of readiness. It's no accident that many evangelical services begin with long sessions of singing praise songs. Nietzsche reminds us that what we sing is remembered much more forcefully than what we say. But there's also a, the aspect that such singing conditions one for the prayers and sermons that are to come. Have you ever thought about the fact that most national anthems are very stirring? I'm both an American and Canadian, and I could sing you their respective anthems. promise I won't do it. Have you ever thought about the fact that singing hymns is kind of like singing a national anthem? In hymns and praise songs, there's often joyfulness in being part of this particular group, and sometimes even a sense of superiority that one is part of this group and not one of those bad groups. I believe I've mentioned in a previous episode that when people sing together, they start to feel at one. The longer that that singing lasts, the stronger that feeling grows. While it's possible that you might decide to attend a church just to see what's happening, it wouldn't be strange if you were to find yourself swept up in the moment. What's crucial to making all this work is a change of focus from the five senses to a kind of inner sense, really a kind of appeal to your right brain. Servants are often emotional and call for emotion in return. Churches that give altar calls, yes, there are still those, usually play soft music with prose that suggests that Jesus is knocking there and wants you to open the door to show that you love him back. Jesus has called us, and now it's our turn to answer that call. Now, under the category mystical manipulation, Lifton points out that part of the mystique is a sense of higher purpose. To be involved in evangelicalism is to be part of a project directed by none other than God. Here's another one of those sentences from the quote from Lifton. Initiated from above, it seeks to provoke specific patterns of behavior and emotion in such a way that these appear to have risen spontaneously from within the environment. I'm taking this word above to refer not to God, but to the folks running the service, though that is, of course, an interesting question in and of itself. If you examine how worship services are put together, it's clear that they are designed to have an emotional impact. And by the way, this is just as true for mainline denominations and really for any organization that wants its members to feel like they're part of things. In any case, it's important to see that the form worship takes very much affects the content. Worship is largely emotional in nature. It is not designed to be an intellectual exercise. Unless, of course, your pastor went to Dallas Theological Seminary. One of the things that became a running joke in my family was the fact that during one of our many trips visiting relatives in Canada, we went to church on Christmas Day. The pastor had gone to Dallas Theological Seminary and proceeded to give an hour-long sermon complete with an overhead projector and a whole lot of Greek words. I was a kid at the time, and my thought went like this. What a way to ruin Christmas. <laughs> 
However, even if we were to simply rule out the possibility of an evangelical leader knowingly manipulating people, let's, let's just say, okay, right, yeah, yeah that, that never happens. The problem with the doctrines of evangelicalism remain. It might be the case that no one is trying to manipulate you by telling you that you'll be damned to hell if you don't turn to Jesus as your Savior, but that belief is fundamental, a very fundamental evangelical belief. Hell is a powerful concept, of course, because it inspires fear. People are already afraid of death, and then the whole scenario of what could happen after you die takes things to a whole different level. It is, alas, a long-standing practice for evangelists to say something like, imagine you were to die on your way home tonight. What would happen? It's not hard to see this as an openly manipulative technique, though it is proven quite effective in terms of numbers. Similarly, evangelicals are reminded over and over that Jesus died for you and your sins. The idea that Jesus suffered and died for you is a kind of heavy-duty belief. Just being told that this is the case can induce great guilt. As you can probably imagine, those of us who take things like this seriously are likely to feel that they're somehow responsible for Jesus dying. Perhaps like the kids who think that her parents' divorce is because of her. Let me put this in a stronger sense. I remember being told many times that had I been Adam or Eve, I would have eaten the fruit. Yes, because I'm a sinner just like them. But I have to say I've never been convinced by such an argument. Actually, I shouldn't even dignify it by calling it an argument. It's just basically an accusation based on nothing. To be honest, I simply don't know what I would have done if I were part of the scenario. Of course, as far as I can tell, this scenario isn't designed to be read as an historical document, so reading in a literal way seems hopeless. Still, the suggestion that all of us are inherently evil and thus would have done the same thing is, I think, both offensive and also based on zero evidence. I have the same response to the idea that had I been at the crucifixion, I would have been among those crying, Crucify! Crucify! In some liturgical traditions, the Passion narrative is read on Palm Sunday. There are people who are designated to play the role of Jesus, Peter, Pontius Pilate, etc. But the congregation is assumed to be among those watching Jesus die, and they are directed to say, crucify him. The justification for this is the belief, again, I think based on absolutely nothing, that all of us would have been among the crucifiers, perhaps. What makes this even more problematic is that evangelicals are not necessarily sure that they are really saved, or that it took. I've given the example of hearing a sermon in my evangelical church back when I was a young teen and going forward at the altar call. As I mentioned, my parents were taken aback by this. They said something like, but you've already accepted Jesus. As I've been working on this episode, I've been reading a lot of different material. And I came across this particular account, and it was almost as if I had written it myself. This person writes, When I was five, I asked Jesus into my heart. But I was worried that it didn't take effect, that God didn't hear me, that my faith wasn't good enough. The problem here is that one is, as an evangelical, never truly certain. Part of this is due to the evangelical theology in which the self is essentially bad. 
In effect, evangelicalism teaches its practitioners to have no faith in themselves. This is why the first step in missionary evangelizing is to destroy whatever faith people have in themselves, to teach them that they are, in effect, failures. Because then they will see the need to accept salvation. Part of this need, of course, is due to human sinfulness. But the assault against the self goes much deeper. Evangelicals are told that their basic desires and drives are inherently evil. They are told that all of us are completely selfish and none of us can rely on our fallen intellects to make the right choices. It's no wonder that we're not able to make good choices. Our intellects have been destroyed by sin. When I would tell my students that Thomas Aquinas says that our basic drives and desires are actually good, even if they've been corrupted by the fall, they would look at me as if I had said something like, the moon is made of cheese. For the entire evangelical project is based on the idea that you cannot be good on your own. Jerry Falwell Sr. gives us this advice, start your day off by ridding yourself of self-reliance. I think that's supposed to sound spiritual. I think it means we're supposed to rely on God. However, as much as I try, I can't help but hear those words and think, Jerry, you're just waiting to play the part of God, aren't you? Lifton points out that, and here I'm quoting, one is asked to accept these manipulations on the basis of an ultimate trust or faith, like a child in the arms of its mother. In effect, there's very little room for anything close to critical thinking. Who is going to question their mother? The expectation is that evangelical children should simply believe what they're told. Further, what child would be intellectually capable of mounting a dissenting response? Or, as I discovered as a child, when one voices any kind of dissent from the accepted evangelical story, it's usually ignored or laughed away. Given that one really has no choice, Lifton claims that victims develop the, as he puts it, psychology of the pawn. One realizes that no genuine escape is possible, and so one becomes hypervigilant in reading the cues to navigate the system. In such a case, one has moved from trust to a kind of mistrust. You should realize that Lifton meant those words to describe Chinese communist thought reform, but I think they are true also of evangelicalism. I can remember discussions with friends, I don't want to be any more specific than that, to the effect, how do we get out of this evangelical world? How do we escape? Let me address this question in two ways. One is simply the following. If you've been told that the world is inherently evil and that you should avoid it as much as possible, what prospect could there be for finding something of value in the world? Yes, that's right. No real prospect at all. And this extends even further than you might think, because evangelicals generally lump the mainline denominations, Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, sometimes even Pentecostals, into the category of the world. The choice appears as follows. You can be a good little evangelical and keep your mouth shut, or you can have a Christless, miserable life. Having worked with thousands of evangelical students, I've seen this dynamic at work over and over again. To make that point even clearer, virtually all the students to whom I mentioned something like, 
you do realize that evangelicalism isn't the only form of Christianity, and it might be that you'd find a better fit in a mainline denomination or some other place. Most of the time when I'd say that, students were taken aback. Quite literally, the vast majority of them had never even contemplated that this actually was an option. I've mentioned before that I taught very smart students. They weren't dumb. However, they had so completely succumbed to a lie. Yes, it's a lie. Yet, that they weren't able to see that this assumption has no grounding whatsoever. But there's another aspect here, one which is, alas, even more problematic. As I've said before, the basic plot line of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is that Kimmy, along with other late adolescent girls, has been kidnapped. The opening credits show a SWAT team member literally opening the door to the bunker and setting them free. If only life could be that simple. The reality, though, is that if you're in the evangelical world, there will never be a SWAT team that will help you. In fact, given how things are going in the United States, it could end up being that the SWAT team is what forces you back into the bunker. Yet the idea that you could get free simply by opening a door is, alas, simply untrue. In the show, Kimmy has many flashbacks to her previous life. While those are effective, what a television show can't show is how much those beliefs became so much a part of you that it becomes hard to shed them. Perhaps some of you listening can relate. For instance, I'm utterly convinced that the idea that people are inherently sinful and bad is simply a false idea. But when I say that I'm convinced, I'm talking about my reasoning about this. Unfortunately, to get my emotions, my deeper reason, my bigger, greater reason, as Nietzsche puts it, in line with my thinking, is a lot more difficult than I would have expected. If you've been told since you were a child that you were sinful, how do you convince your right brain to feel differently? Perhaps you now have a better idea of why I focused on the things that we believe on the basis of what we've been told growing up. Those things are very difficult to shed. Indeed, I wonder if such negative thoughts will ever go away. Evangelicalism trains you to focus on your sins. I've had a long-standing practice of asking students who want letters of recommendation to write one for themselves and then hand it in to me. The main motivation for this is simple. Students know much more about themselves than I as a professor ever could, and so these helped me to write the letter. But I remember one student, one of my particularly bright students, who turned in the letter and said something like the following, this is the first time anyone in the evangelical world has asked me to talk positively about myself. In the past, I was forced to focus on my sin and ignore anything good about myself. Writing this letter has been a wonderful experience for me. I felt very sad when I heard that, though I was glad to hear that exercise had had such a positive result. However, just writing a positive letter about oneself doesn't make all the emotional baggage go away. And that, unfortunately, is part of the effect of evangelical teaching. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. You've been listening to On Becoming.